Section four of the Overture to Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by Scott Moncrief. The Overture. Section four. Mamma spent that night in my room. When I had just committed a sin so deadly that I was waiting to be banished from the household, my parents gave me a far greater concession than I should ever have won as the reward of a good action. Even at the moment when it manifested itself in this crowning mercy, my father's conduct towards me was still somewhat arbitrary, and, regardless of my deserts, as was characteristic of him, and due to the fact that his actions were generally dictated by chance expediencies, rather than based on any formal plan. And perhaps even what I call his strictness, when he sent me off to bed, deserved that title less, really, than my mother's or grandmother's attitude, for his nature, which in some respects differed more than theirs from my own, had probably prevented him from guessing, until then, how wretched I was every evening, a thing which my mother and grandmother knew well. But they loved me enough to be unwilling to spare me that suffering, which they hoped to teach me to overcome, so as to reduce my nervous sensibility and to strengthen my will. As for my father, whose affection for me was of another kind, I doubt if he would have shown so much courage, for as soon as he had grasped the fact that I was unhappy, he had said to my mother, Go and comfort him. Mamma stayed all night in my room, and it seemed that she did not wish to mar my recrimination those hours, so different from anything that I had had a right to expect. For when Francoise, who guessed that something extraordinary must have happened, when she saw Mamma sitting by my side, holding my hand, and letting me cry unchecked, said to her, But, Madame, what is little Master crying for? She replied, Why, Francoise, he doesn't know himself. It is his nerves. Make up the big bed for me quickly, and then go off to your own. And thus for the first time, my unhappiness was regarded no longer as a fault for which I must be punished, but as an involuntary evil, which had been officially recognized a nervous condition, for which I was in no way responsible. I had the consolation that I need no longer mingle apprehensive scruples with the bitterness of my tears. I could weep henceforward without sin. I felt no small degree of pride either in Francois's presence at this return to humane conditions, which, not an hour after Mamma had refused to come up to my room, and had sent the snubbing message that I was to go to sleep, raised me to the dignity of a grown-up person, brought me of a sudden to a sort of puberty of sorrow, to emancipation from tears, I ought then to have been happy. I was not. It struck me that my mother had just made a first concession 
which must have been painful to her, that it was a first step down from the ideal she had formed for me, and that, for the first time, she, with all her courage, had to confess herself beaten. It struck me that, if I had just scored a victory, it was over her, that I had succeeded, as sickness or sorrow or age might have succeeded, in relaxing her will, altering her judgment, that this evening opened a new era, must remain a black date in the calendar. And if I had dared now, I should have said to Mamma, No, I don't want you. You mustn't sleep here. But I was conscious of the practical wisdom of what would be called nowadays the realism with which she tempered the ardent idealism of my grandmother's nature. And I knew that, now the mischief was done, she would prefer to let me enjoy the soothing pleasure of her company, and not to disturb my father again. Certainly my mother's beautiful features seemed to shine again with youth that evening, as she sat gently holding my hands and trying to check my tears. But just for that reason it seemed to me that this should not have happened. Her anger would have been less difficult to endure than this new kindness which my childhood had not known. I felt that I had with an impious and secret finger traced a first wrinkle upon her soul, and made the first white hair show upon her head. This thought redoubled my sobs, and then I saw that Mamma, who had never allowed herself to go to any length of tenderness with me, was suddenly overcome by my tears, and had to struggle to keep back her own. Then, as she saw that I had noticed this, she said to me, with a smile, Why, my little buttercup, my little canary boy, he's going to make Mamma as silly as himself if this goes on. Look, since you can't sleep, and Mamma can't either, we mustn't go on in this stupid way. We must do something. I'll get one of your books. But I had none there. Would you like me to get out now the books that your grandmother's going to give you for your birthday? Just think it over first, and don't be disappointed if there's nothing new for you then. I was only too delighted, and Mamma went to find a parcel of books in which I could not distinguish, through the paper in which it was wrapped, any more than its squareness and size, but which, even at this first glimpse, brief and obscure as it was, bade fair to eclipse already the paint-box of last New Year's Day and the silkworms of the year before. It contained La Mare au Diable, François Le Champy, La Petite Fadette, and Les Maîtres Sonneurs. My grandmother, as I learned afterwards, had at first chosen Musset's poems, a volume of Rousseau, and Indiana, for while she considered light reading as unwholesome as sweets and cakes, 
She did not reflect that the strong breath of genius must have upon the very soul of a child an influence at once more dangerous and less quickening than those of fresh air and country breezes upon his body. But when my father had seemed almost to regard her as insane on learning the names of the books she proposed to give me, she had journeyed back by herself to Jules le Vicomte to the booksellers, so that there should be no fear of my not having my present in time. It was a burning hot day, and she had come home so unwell that the doctor had warned my mother not to allow her again to tire herself in that way, and had there fallen back upon the four pastoral novels of Georges Saint. My dear, she had said to Mamma, I could not allow myself to give the child anything that was not well written. The truth was that she could never make up her mind to purchase anything from which no intellectual profit was to be derived, and, above all, that profit which good things bestowed on us by teaching us to seek our pleasures elsewhere than in the barren satisfaction of worldly wealth. Even when she had to make someone a present of the kind called useful, when she had to give an armchair, or some table silver, or a walking-stick, she would choose antiques, as though their long desuetude had effaced from them any semblance of utility, and fitted them rather to instruct us in the lives of the men of other days than to serve the common requirements of our own. She would have liked me to have in my room photographs of ancient buildings, or of beautiful places. But at the moment of buying them, and for all that the subject of the picture had an aesthetic value of its own, she would find that vulgarity and utility had too prominent a part in them, through the mechanical nature of their reproduction by photography. She attempted by a subterfuge, if not to eliminate altogether their commercial banality, at least to minimize it, to substitute for the bulk of it what was art still, to introduce, as it might be, several thicknesses of art. Instead of photographs of Chartres Cathedral, of the fountains of St. Cloud, or of Vesuvius, she would inquire of Swann whether some great painter had not made pictures of them, and preferred to give me photographs of Chartres Cathedral after Corot, of the fountains of St. Cloud after Hubert Robert, and of Vesuvius after Turner, which were a stage higher in the scale of art. But, although the photographer had been prevented from reproducing directly the masterpieces or the beauties of nature, and had there been replaced by a great artist, he resumed his odious position when it came to reproducing the artist's interpretation. Accordingly, having to reckon again with vulgarity, my grandmother would endeavor to postpone the moment of contact still further. She would ask Swann if the picture had not been engraved, preferring, when possible, old engravings with some interest of association apart from themselves, such, for example, as show us a masterpiece in a state in which we can no longer see it to-day, 
as Morgan's print of Senacolo of Leonardo, before it was spoiled by restoration. It must be admitted that the results of this method of interpreting the art of making presents were not always happy. The idea which I formed of Venice, from a drawing by Titian, which is supposed to have the lagoon in the background, was, certainly, far less accurate than what I have since derived from ordinary photographs. We could no longer keep count in the family, when my great-aunt tried to frame an indictment of my grandmother, of all the armchairs she had presented to married couples, young and old, which, on a first attempt to sit down upon them, had at once collapsed beneath the weight of their recipient. But my grandmother would have thought it sordid to concern herself too closely with the solidity of any piece of furniture in which could still be discerned a flourish, a smile, a brave conceit of the past. And even what in such pieces supplied a material need, since it did so in a manner to which we are no longer accustomed, was as charming to her as one of those old forms of speech in which we can still see traces of a metaphor whose fine point has been worn away by the rough usage of our modern tongue. In precisely the same way, the pastoral novels of Georges Saint, which she was giving me for my birthday, were regular lumber-rooms of antique furniture, full of expressions that have fallen out of use and returned as imagery such as one finds now only in country dialects. And my grandmother had bought them in preference to other books, just as she would have preferred to take a house that had a gothic dovecut, or some other such piece of antiquity, as would have a pleasant effect on the mind, filling it with a nostalgic longing for impossible journeys through the realms of time. Mamma sat down by my bed. She had chosen Francois Le Champy, whose reddish cover and incomprehensible title gave it a distinct personality in my eye, and a mysterious attraction. I had not then read any novels. I had heard it said that Georges Saint was a typical novelist. That prepared me in advance to imagine that François Le Champy contained something inexpressibly delicious. The course of the narrative, where it tended to arouse curiosity or melt to pity, certain modes of expression which disturb or sadden the reader, and which, with a little experience, he may recognize as common form in novels, seemed to me then distinctive. For to me, a new book was not one of a number of similar objects, but was like an individual man, unmatched, and with no cause of existence beyond himself, an intoxicating whiff of the peculiar essence of François Le Champy. Beneath the everyday incidents, the commonplace thoughts, and hackneyed words, I could hear, or over here, an intonation, a rhythmic utterance, fine and strange. The action began. 
to me it seemed all the more obscure because in those days when i read to myself i used often while i turned the pages to dream of something quite different and to the gaps which this habit made in my knowledge of the story more were added by the fact that when it was mamma who was reading to me aloud she left all the love scenes out and so all the odd changes which take place in the relations between the miller's wife and the boy changes which only the birth and growth of love can explain seemed to me plunged and steeped in a mystery the key to which as i could readily believe lay in that strange and pleasant-sounding name of champy which draped the boy who bore it i know not why in its own bright color purpurate and charming if my mother was not a faithful reader she was none the less admirable when reading a book in which she found the note of true feeling by the respectful simplicity of her interpretation and by the sound of her sweet and gentle voice it was the same in her daily life when it was not works of art but men and women whom she was moved to pity or admire it was touching to observe with what deference she would banish from her voice her gestures from her whole conversation now the note of joy which might have distressed some mother who had long ago lost a child now the recollection of an event or anniversary which might have reminded some old gentleman of the burden of his years now the household topic which might have bored some young man of letters and so when she read aloud the prose of george saint prose which is everywhere redolent of that generosity and moral distinction which mamma had learned from my grandmother to place above all other qualities in life and which i was not to teach her until much later to refrain from placing in the same way above all other qualities in literature taking pains to banish from her voice any weakness or affectation which might have blocked its channel for that powerful stream of language she supplied all the natural tenderness all the lavish sweetness which they demanded to phrases which seemed to have been composed for her voice and which were all so to speak within her compass she came to them with the tone that they required with the cordial accent which existed before they were which dictated them but which is not to be found in the words themselves and by these means she smoothed away as she read on any harshness there might be or discordance in the tenses of verbs endowing the imperfect and the preterite with all the sweetness which there is in generosity all the melancholy which there is in love guided the sentence that was drawing to an end towards that which was waiting to begin now hastening now slackening the pace of the syllables so as to bring them despite their difference of quantity into a uniform rhythm 
and breathed into this quite ordinary prose a kind of life, continuous and full of feeling. My agony was soothed. I let myself be borne upon the current of this gentle night on which I had my mother by my side. I knew that such a night could not be repeated, that the strongest desire I had in the world, namely, to keep my mother in my room through the sad hours of darkness, ran too much counter to general requirements and to the wishes of others, for such a concession as had been granted me this evening to be anything but a rare and casual exception. Tomorrow night I should again be the victim of anguish, and Mamma would not stay by my side. But when these storms of anguish grew calm, I could no longer realize their existence. Besides, tomorrow evening was still a long way off. I reminded myself that I should still have time to think about things, albeit that remission of time could bring me no access of power, albeit the coming event was in no way dependent upon the exercise of my will, and seemed not quite inevitable, only because it was still separated from me by this short interval. And so it was for a long time afterwards, when I lay awake at night, and revived old memories of Cambrai, I saw no more of it than this sort of luminous panel, sharply defined against a vague and shadowy background, like the panels which a Bengal fire or some electric sign will illuminate and dissect from the front of a building, the other parts of which remain plunged in darkness. Broad enough at its base, the little parlour, the dining-room, the alluring shadows of the path along which would come M. Swann, the unconscious author of my sufferings, the hall through which I would journey to the first step of that staircase, so hard to climb, which constituted all by itself the tapering elevation of an irregular pyramid, and at the summit, my bedroom, with the little passage through whose glazed door Mamma would enter, in a word, seen always at the same evening hour, isolated from all its possible surroundings, detached and solitary against its shadowy background, the bare minimum of scenery necessary, like the setting one sees printed at the head of an old play for its performance in the provinces, to the drama of my undressing, as though all Cambrai had consisted of but two floors joined by a slender staircase, and as though there had been no time there but seven o'clock at night. I must own that I could have assured any questioner that Cambrai did include other scenes, and did exist at other hours than these, but since the facts which I should then have recalled would have been prompted only by an exercise of the will, by an intellectual memory, and since the pictures which that kind of memory shows us of the past preserve nothing of the past itself, I should never have had any wish to ponder over this residue of Cambrai. To me it was, in all reality, all 
dead. Permanently dead? Very possibly. There is a large element of hazard in these matters, and a second hazard, that of our own death, often prevents us from awaiting for any length of time the favors of the first. I feel that there is much to be said for the Celtic belief that the souls of those whom we have lost are held captive in some inferior being, in an animal, in a plant, in some inanimate object, and so effectively lost to us, until the day, which to many never comes, when we happen to pass by the tree, or to obtain possession of the object which forms their prison. Then they start and tremble. They call us by our name, and as soon as we have recognized their voice, the spell is broken. We have delivered them. They have overcome death and returned to share our life. And so it is with our past. It is a labor in vain to attempt to recapture it. All the efforts of our intellect must prove futile. The past is hidden somewhere outside the realm, beyond the reach of intellect, in some material object, in the sensation which that material object will give us, which we do not suspect. And as for that object, it depends on chance whether we come upon it or not, before we ourselves must die. Many years had elapsed during which nothing of Cambrai, save what was comprised in the theatre and the drama of my going to bed there, had any existence for me, when, one day in winter, as I came home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, offered me some tea, a thing I did not ordinarily take. I declined at first, and then, for no particular reason, changed my mind. She sent out for one of those short, plump little cakes called Petite Madeleine, which look as though they had been moulded in the fluted scallop of a pilgrim's shell. And soon, mechanically, weary after a dull day with the prospect of a depressing morrow, I raised to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate than a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, but individual, detached, with no suggestion of its origin, and at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory, this new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence. Or, rather, this essence was not in me, it was myself. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. Whence could it have come to me, this all-powerful joy? I was conscious that it was connected with the taste of tea and cake, but that it infinitely transcended those savors, 
could not indeed be of the same nature as theirs. Whence did it come? What did it signify? How could I seize upon it and define it? I drink a second mouthful, in which I find nothing more than in the first, a third which gives me rather less than the second. It is time to stop. The potion is losing its magic. It is plain that the object of my quest, the truth, lies not in the cup, but in myself. The tea has called up in me, but does not itself understand, and can only repeat indefinitely, with a gradual loss of strength, the same testimony, which I too cannot interpret, though I hope at least to be able to call upon the tea for it again, and to find it there presently, intact and at my disposal, for my final enlightenment. I put down my cup and examine my own mind. It is for it to discover the truth. But how? What an abyss of uncertainty whenever the mind feels that some part of it has strayed beyond its own borders, when it, the seeker, is at once the dark region through which it must go seeking, where all its equipment will avail it nothing. Seek? More than that, create. It is face to face with something that does not so far exist, to which it alone can give reality and substance, which it alone can bring into the light of day. And I begin again to ask myself what it could have been, this unremembered state which brought with it no logical proof of its existence, but only the sense that it was a happy, that it was a real state, in whose presence other states of consciousness melted and vanished. I decide to attempt to make it reappear. I retrace my thoughts to the moment at which I drank the first spoonful of tea. I find again the same state, illumined by no fresh light. I compel my mind to make one further effort, to follow and recapture once again the fleeting sensation, and that nothing may interrupt it in its course, I shut out every obstacle, every extraneous idea, I stop my ears, and inhibit all attention to the sounds which come from the next room. And then, feeling that my mind is growing fatigued without having any success to report, I compel it for a change to enjoy that distraction which I have just denied it, to think of other things, to rest and refresh itself before the supreme attempt. And then, for the second time, I clear an empty space in front of it, I place in position before my mind's eye the still recent taste of that first mouthful, and I feel something start within me, something that leaves its resting place and attempts to rise, something that has been embedded like an anchor at a great depth. I do not know yet what it is, but I can feel it mounting slowly. I can measure the resistance. I can hear the echo of great spaces traversed. 
Undoubtedly what is thus palpitating in the depths of my being must be the image, the visual memory which, being linked to that taste, has tried to follow it into my conscious mind. But its struggles are too far off, too much confused. Scarcely can I perceive the colorless reflection in which are blended the uncapturable, whirling medley of radiant hues, and I cannot distinguish its form, cannot invite it, as the one possible interpreter, to translate to me the evidence of its contemporary, its inseparable paramour, the taste of cake soaked in tea, cannot ask it to inform me what special circumstance is in question, of what period in my past life. Will it ultimately reach the clear surface of my consciousness, this memory, this old dead moment, with the magnetism of an identical moment, has travelled so far to importune, to disturb, to raise up out of the very depths of my being, I cannot tell. Now that I feel nothing, it has stopped, has perhaps gone down again into its darkness, from which who can say whether it will ever rise? Ten times over I must essay the task, must lean down over the abyss, and each time the natural laziness which deters us from every difficult enterprise, every work of importance, has urged me to leave the thing alone, to drink my tea and to think merely of the worries of to-day and of my hopes for to-morrow, which let themselves be pondered over without effort or distress of mind. And suddenly the memory returns. The taste was that of the little crumb of Madeline which on Sunday mornings at Cambrai, because on those mornings I did not go out before church time, when I went to say good day to her in her bedroom, my Aunt Leonie used to give me, dipping it first in her own cup of real or of lime-flower tea. The sight of the little Madeline had recalled nothing to my mind before I tasted it, perhaps because I had so often seen such things in the interval, without tasting them, on the trays in pastry-cook's windows, that their image had dissociated itself from those Cambrai days to take its place among others more recent. Perhaps because of those memories, so long abandoned and put out of my mind, nothing now survived. Everything was scattered. The forms of things, including that of the little scallop shell of pastry, so richly sensual under its severe religious folds, were either obliterated or had been so long dormant as to have lost the power of expansion which would have allowed them to resume their place in my consciousness. But when, from a long distant past, nothing subsists, after the people are dead, after the things are broken and scattered, still alone, more fragile but with more vitality, more unsubstantial, more persistent, more faithful, the smell and taste of things remain poised a long time.
like souls, ready to remind us, waiting and hoping for their moment, amid the ruins of all the rest, and bear unfaltering in the tiny and almost impalpable drop of their essence the vast structure of recollection. And once I had recognized the taste of the crumb of madeleine soaked in her decoction of lime flowers, which my aunt used to give me, although I did not yet know, and must long postpone the discovery of why this memory made me so happy. Immediately the old grey house upon the street, where her room was, rose up like the scenery of a theatre, to attach itself to the little pavilion opening on to the garden, which had been built out behind it for my parents. The isolated panel which, until that moment, had been all that I could see. And, with the house, the town, from morning to night, and in all weathers, the square where I was sent before luncheon, the streets along which I used to run errands, the country roads we took when it was fine. And just as the Japanese amused themselves by filling a porcelain bowl with water, and steeping in it little crumbs of paper, which until then are without character or form, but the moment they become wet, stretch themselves and bend, take on color and distinctive shape, become flowers or houses or people, permanent and recognizable. So, in that moment, all the flowers in our garden, and in Monsieur Swann's park, and the water-lilies on the Vivonne, and the good folk of the village, and their little dwellings, and the parish church, and the whole of Cambrai, and of its surroundings, taking their proper shapes, and growing solid, sprang into being, town and gardens alike, from my cup of tea. End of section four from the overture to Swan's Way. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox, winter two thousand and seven.